My goodness, you're listening to Ergo sometimes on WHPK, always at ergoradio.com. I'm Kiss. I'm Damon. What's up, world? How y'all feeling? Um, as wait, wait, our, wait, didn't give him any time to respond. How are y'all feeling? All right, that's good to hear. All right, sounds good. Nice to check in with you. Um, as has been the case for the past few weeks, as WHPK works through a difficult time in their in their history, uh, we're recording from uh, from Humboldt Park, from Ergo Studio B. What, what, what if this was the FCC the whole time and they finally got us back? Man. What if they won the beef and they shut down our station? <laughs> Can you win a beef if nobody knows that you want it, though? <laughs> Like if, if Drake like just called Meek Mill behind the scenes and rapped to him on the phone <laughs> and got, present. That is like that is studio shut down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's gotta be public. We're we're gonna keep doing what we do. They All can't right. they can't hold us. We're back. winning. Fuck you, FCC. Here exactly. We go. Um and we have a very special guest <laughs> here. I'm really That's excited. That's political this week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's it's going to be a great show. But first, uh, a couple community announcements, as as always. Um, first off, if by community I mean us, then this is a community announcement. We are going on tour this fall and this spring, going to campuses, doing talks about the show, organizing and radio workshops, and then a concert where we bring folks who have been on the show to perform. Um we're really excited to do it. We need your help. Um, I can see the cities that you guys listen in. I know there are colleges there and some of y'all are college age. Hit us up, figure out how to get us on campus, ergoradio at gmail.com. Um, make our lives easier. Make it, uh, you know, bring us to campus. It'll be fun. Give us your school's money yeah. also yeah. if you have access to that. But um, also this is day, today is day 35 of Freedom Square, the political occupation across the street from Holman Square where the Chicago Police Department has been illegally detaining and torturing thousands of people here in this city. Um, and yeah, we still rocking. So I just want y'all to know that. And for those who don't know about Freedom Square, Google us. But also, you know, I'll give you the quick nuts and bolts. You know, standing for love, fighting for freedom, building community on the west side of Chicago and North Lawndale, um, towards envisioning a world that that is less violent as a society um, and also a world without prisons and police and the things that we actually need to keep ourselves safe. So, Damon, how can people get involved? Um... I don't know. I don't got a phone. See, I can't help. I'll just play. <laughs> um, you know, definitely uh, come and show up. Um, like it's 24 hours a day. So you can come and ask people specifically immediately. Uh, but we are collecting school supplies um, through the 6th of September. So we like book bags and uniform pants. So khaki pants for all uh, genders, shapes and sizes. Uh, we want to give away as many uniform pants as possible when we're running low on those. Um, otherwise, come through, be a part of the political conversation. You can help clean. You can help serve food. You can help imagine abolitionist politics. There's there's a lot that can be done. It's always growing and always being reshaped. So if I have Dickies parachute pants, that sounds good. You'd I didn't those? even know that those existed, but sure, we'll take them. Custom I think, made, those, I think made. those. I think the charter schools and CPS would allow <laughs> with the with the with the Dickie Jankos. Yeah, yeah the the MC Hammer Dickies. <laughs> All right. Also. Um, Ergo alum and friend Rick Wilson, shot congratulations first off to him. Shouts to him for uh, he won the contest and is performing at North Coast Music oh, Festival. Shout out squad. Yeah. Um, and he has his last show before that. <clears throat> his last show before that this Friday, uh, opening for Mike Golden at Double Door. Come through, show some support for that. Also, the one year anniversary of Party Noir is coming up. Um, come through that. All right. Let's uh let's let's do what we do. I'm really excited. It's been it feels like it's been forever. Every time we miss a week or we take a week off, like I'm reminded of how much I like doing this. So sentimental moment. Oh, um, first off, Daniel Kehertz, thank you for being here. Woo! Thanks for asking me. Yeah, no. Burr, burr, burr. It's uh it's exciting to have you here. Have you had air horns before? You- I've never had air horns announced me before. That's, there we go. That's very cool. Do you usually bring your own? Yeah, I ha- actually, I have some in my bag if you want. I feel like that wouldn't be good on the audio. It would clip. We like to Maybe, it. yeah. Yeah. How, uh, how are you feeling today? How is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Although it got too hot last night and I'm, uh, I was really excited for the like day or two we had of like low humidity. Sorry, that's like, I know responding with the weather is the most boring possible <laughs> you know, way to do this. This podcast is over. <laughs> we don't do Sorry, that. I'll, I'll, I'll go home. Um, no, I'm good. I'm good. I, uh... 
sort of a time of transitions. I just started a new job about a month ago. I'm moving on Sunday. So uh, yeah, I'm feeling like having some changes. Where you it's, it's always to? good. Where you to? <laughs> it's a long story. I'm kind of embarrassed to say this. So right now I live in Edgewater and I'm like a big evangelist for Edgewater. I love Edgewater. Um, but <laughs> An Edgewater <laughs> evangelist. I am. I don't laugh. It's true. I, uh, DKH. Um, That's pretty good. Um, but long story, I'm moving in with a friend in Lakeview uh, for a year uh, on Sunday. Basically, they it's a couple. One of them's moving east. The other one thought they were moving east but couldn't for a year because of jobs. Um, they were like, I need somebody to split rent with. It's a beautiful apartment. Oh my God. No, it sounds tough. It's, it's not, yeah. My, my life like is hard. My life is hard. They have a, basically they have like a, streets. they have a balcony and that's all I've ever wanted in my entire balcony. life. It's like one of those old, like brick, you know, yeah. four story buildings with mm. a like recessed balcony mm. right in the, in the brick. Yeah. I'm, I gotta, I'm pretty, I know this isn't about like your brilliant work, which I'm excited <laughs> to talk about. Housing shit is the worst. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like both structurally and then also like <laughs> but, trying to find a goddamn house. Yes. It's been a month and a half. I'm livid. I'm, I, I've never been this angry. This should on have been in the community announcements. You need a roommate, right? No, I don't, no, don't want to do, do the plug. I don't want right. to do the plug. It makes right. me feel too. Adaya needs a roommate. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're in, if you're interested in living a Pearson Spalding in a beautiful old graystone, <laughs> hit me up in the next two days. Um. Anyway. Yeah. No, housing is the worst. It is actually the worst. Yeah. No, even. Even, even this situation, which I, my landlord's not going to listen to this. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, he is. We're big on the landlord. Our, our reach is far. You're in trouble. Um, no, even this where I'm like moving in with somebody who already lives there, who I know and is a friend of mine. It's been, it's been a lot. I'll just say that. It's been a lot. So uh, while we, you know, first of all, I'm really excited to have you here. I, I think like. Before we get into the nitty gritty of what you do, I think something that one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on is we spent a lot of time talking to people who really love this city. Um, and that presents itself in their art and in their organizing in a lot of different ways. But I, I think that's one of the shared currents throughout is that people have this really uh, like unconditional love for the city of Chicago. Yeah. Um, and as a transplant for me, it's interesting to watch that and, and start to figure out like, what is that, where does that love come from? Um, so for you, it seems like you really love this city um, yeah. beyond just being home. Like what, where does that come from for you? Good question. That is a good question. That's a really hard question. I don't know. I, I forget who I was having this conversation with, but a, a while ago I was having a conversation where we were like, we don't trust anybody who doesn't simultaneously love and hate the city. You know, there, there's something wrong with you on both. If, if you're missing either one. Right. Um, and I would uh, add someone who like, doesn't have any opinion about it. Yeah, <laughs> if you can just write yeah, Chicago's fun. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I honestly, I think part of it, so I grew up here, but then we started to move around a bit. So when I was 14, we actually left the city for two years and moved to Madison, Wisconsin. Mm. And I think that was a big, you know, I had never known anything other than Chicago, right? And so to suddenly be somewhere else, um, you know, there were a lot of things that made me appreciate the city more. Um, you know, one of them from a sort of like urban planning standpoint, you know, when I was 14, growing up in mostly Albany Park, also West Rogers Park for a couple of years. Um, you know, I had just gotten to the age where like I could walk around the neighborhood by myself, hang out with my friends by myself, go take the train or the bus and like basically go wherever. And, you know, that kind of freedom was really, really exciting. And all of a sudden you get to a place like Madison, which you know, I have later come to have a lot of appreciation for. But at age 14, um, you know, suddenly, oh, I have to be driven everywhere. There is nothing. You know, I remember once trying to take the bus downtown and like it just didn't come. And I walked, you know, I walked like 90 minutes to downtown because I was just like, I'm 15. I have nothing better to do, you know? Uh, yeah. And then, you know, um, you know, I went to Whitney Young for seventh and eighth grade, just crazy diverse school, right? People from all over the city, from every neighborhood, from every country, from, you know, um, and uh, you know, by American standards, um, the school the, that I went to in, in Madison for two years, Madison West, if anybody knows, uh, was actually pretty integrated. But compared to Whitney Young, not, nah, you know. Right. And so coming back, so what, 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 
Oh, good thing it's recorded. I can it <laughs> no, so keep what, it keep it raw. <laughs> so what is did you come back to the city? So we moved. So so yeah. So then when I was sixteen, before I was a junior in high school, we moved back. But we actually moved to South Evanston, um, basically because my parents didn't want to deal with CPS for my younger brother. Um, and yeah, and that was a whole other thing. I mean, I. Um, I, you know, I had always thought of Evanston as sort of like, you know, an extension of Rogers Park, basically. But at least my experience when I was there, and you know, I was only there for two years. I was there in high school, like million grains of salt. Right. But my experience when I was there was um, that it most people there thought of it much more as sort of the beginning of the North Shore suburbs rather mm-hmm. than the last neighborhood in Chicago. And that was that sort of manifested itself in all sorts of weird ways. Um, so. Yeah. It, so it didn't, it, it, all of a sudden those separations become clear. So let's, I want to jump a little bit. Uh, basically, how do you, I mean, I, you do a bajillion things. Uh, I, I feel like, how do you, yeah. is there kind of a framework for what you, how would you describe what you, you do? I hate this question yeah. being asked, but I'm going to ask it anyway. That's a, yeah. Um, well, so, so uh, professionally, I currently work for, um, something called the Center for Tax and Budget Accountability, which is a uh, sort of sounds sexy. It is. Oh my god! Oh my god! Shout out! You have no Shout idea. Out the Center for Tax and Budget Accountability. <laughs> Hell yeah! What up? Community announcement come through on Friday. It's about to be crazy. It's going out. You guys have no idea. Yeah. No. Um. It's it's actually awesome. So it's a it's basically it's a it's a fiscal a budget policy think tank. So the focus is on state and city. Policy. Somebody recently, I described was I just started a month ago, and I was describing what I was doing to some one of my friends, and they were basically like, "So you read about austerity all day?" And I was like, "Yeah." That's Define about. that for the people. Austerity. Austerity. We like to have a vocab word. Yeah. No. That. Yeah. So austerity is just the general trend. I mean, you could say since the recession, or you could say since you know, the sort of Reagan era of the '80s of cutbacks in public programs, cutbacks in public spending, the idea that like, you know, we can't afford the services we have. We can't afford to have all, you know, these things owned by publicly. People need to die basically. (laughs) So we need to, yeah. So we need to, I'm sorry. I'm the one. No, 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 no. But I mean, it, you know, in many cases it is actually life and death, you know, when, when you're cutting, um, you know, when you're cutting health services, mental health services. Yeah. It's, it's, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's real. Um, so that's what I'm doing professionally. It's really cool. I just started. Uh, before that, I was working for um, a like virtual urban policy think tank. But sorry, this is really nitty gritty. So basically, I I am interested in local public policy, and I'm interested in cities and how they work, mm-hmm. and neighborhood change, and housing and transportation, and basically ways ways. I, I'm especially interested in ways that inequality manifests geographically, like mm-hmm. the geographic aspect of inequality so so before we start because there's so many lessons we can learn there's, I, I have like a million questions a million ways i want that conversation to go because that, that, that those are like really important structural aspects of just how our world is shaped but before i want to get into like the personal of like you know kind of like when we have like rappers on we yeah like, you know, what would you tell somebody what like how did you get interested into that work how did you that's not something you just like slip into one day there's yeah no after school program <laughs> for for austerity there's no open mic for for like tax reform right, right? so, so how, how did you grow up getting into being interested in so sometimes these? bad open mics feel like that. <laughs> <laughs> how do you how, do you, how, do, should, yeah, how did should. you get there you know yeah, um, I think it was a confluence of a lot of things. So one of the things is um, by my parents were are community organizers um, and work in the space. So um, my mom's been a community organizer since like the 80s. Uh, my dad was in that and now works for has been working for um, public sector labor union for a while. So like I just grew up like that's what we talked about at the dinner table, you know, was politics and and that sort of thing. Um you know, specifically why, why sort of urban issues and housing and transportation issues. I think part of it is actually what I mentioned, moving to Madison and being like, oh, this is different in ways that suck. Uh, what is actually, like, what am I noticing? What are the parts of the difference? You know, oh, oh, the houses are further apart. Oh, the roads are bigger and the public transit is worse. Um, and then, 
Part of it was going to Whitney Young, honestly. Part of it was getting to know people from lots of different neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, I mean, I can remember some of the first times I took trains through parts of the South Side and, right, you take the green line south and you're like, this doesn't look like Albany Park, right? This doesn't, you know, why why would there be an entire block where half the lots are empty? That doesn't make sense. Um, except it does make sense, right? If you read, you know, if you read the history, all of a sudden you're like, oh, Right. And what you just said is like a really important point <clears throat> because a lot of folks, that's actually where it ends uh, is they go, oh, this just doesn't make sense. Or you justify it with one of these like very racist, easy justifications. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, you know, they can't take care of it. whatever. But it's that next step. I'm wondering, do you think that you could have gotten to the point of like, why does this make sense if that those hadn't been the conversations around the dinner table? Like how important was it for you to have people namely your parents who are starting to ask those questions and answer those at an early age. Shout out mom and pops. Yeah, yeah no parents, seriously. Uh, <laughs> it was super important. It was super important to have a sort of foundation of knowledge and ways of sort of asking questions. Um, you know, it was, it was also important, frankly, that I knew people who lived in those neighborhoods, yeah. right? It was, it would be a lot harder to be like, Oh, they're just, you know, those are messed up people. Um, if I didn't know anybody who who was actually from those places. Um, and then, you know, just books. Well, and actually this goes back to my parents, right? My parents had, I, there is like one book I think that really got me down this path, which is called uh, Making the Second Ghetto by a guy named Arnold Hirsch. And it, familiar with the title. Yeah. And it basically covers housing policy in Chicago between like 1940 and the 60s, uh, which is a period of, you know, the second great migration and really shaped really created what are today the racial boundaries of the city. We'll add it to the ergo reading list. You can check which exists on our website. Oh yeah. So that's awesome. Books we get mentioned on the air. I'm going to add that to it. Man, you're, you're on it. You're on hey it. man, I'm trying. <laughs> really out here. Reading. Yeah. Let's go. <laughs> no, it's amazing. And, and, and it really was one of those moments where you're like, you know, you, you see, you, you see the inequality and you're like, well, this doesn't make sense. And you, you're right. You, and I think, yeah, you, you can say, okay, I can make up, or, or not even make up, right? All the all the racist theories are already made for you. You just have to adopt they're the, them. The, they're the just, easiest to find. Yeah, always. right. Um, and then, okay, so that sort of fills the gap between what I see and what sort of intuitively makes sense. Or you can go and read the histories. And, you, you know, started with making the second ghetto, but then, you know, lots of stuff beyond that. And you're like, oh, yeah, it totally makes sense, right? It, it's, um, there's nothing, I mean, obviously there's stuff left to explain, but like, um, the basic contours of the city, if you if you know the history, like, oh, yeah, that, that totally makes sense that we would end up in this situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're like right in alignment of like just how structure, right? Like as Chicago is being known um, for its violence and despair, right? Like the, the, the understanding of how Chicago is unique in how structurally designed the the poverty separation segregation is because as the most segregated city in the country yeah um and, and that connection of that structural to like the very human that, that we see so i, I kind of want to know and I, i'll speak personally um what was the moment that like the work clicked for you like oh this i i recognize this i'm interested in this but now what i am doing is addressing that so like personally i think we had a lot of the um the same questions from different perspectives as somebody on the South side whose mom loved to yeah. go shopping up North. And yeah. like, I would be able to see what the North side looks like. I had the question, like went to school, like I want to figure out why the North side and, Ch and South side of Chicago are different. And how do we fix that? Right. Yeah. And then you start to learn the structures and that it's not just Chicago, it's national, it's international. Yeah. Um, and so for me, the Ferguson moment and you know, the movement and the organizing that has come out of the last two years has like clicked of like, Oh, I am addressing what my eight-year-old and 12-year-old and 16-year-old self was yeah. asking about. Um, in your work, what was kind of that first moment of like this this stat, this project, this finding is like, oh, this is what I this is what I do and this is why I'm doing it. That was yeah, bad. that's a that's a really big question. I don't I don't know that I have or one some of them, a few of them. Yeah, one moment. Of like, one moment. And I mean, I'll you know, just as a as a as a sort of preamble, uh I struggle with am I addressing it all the time? Mm, I mean, that's, that's, that's real. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's a whole other, that's a whole other discussion, which maybe we, we can have later, <laughs> but I'll, but, but to answer your actual question, I, um, 
I don't know. I think there were several moments. I mean, I think one of them was, so I came back to the city in fall of 2011 and I was hoping to be a, a freelance journalist and I like failed miserably. <laughs> um, <laughs> made, made no money. Um, <laughs> Which is very easy to do. Oh, oh my God. The people who have, I mean, I was, it was incredibly arrogant of me to think that I could do it. Right. I had no training in it. I had no training in journalism. I had no expertise on anything. <laughs> nobody should have given me any money. And there, so the, nobody did. You have the glasses um, for it. I have the glasses. I didn't even have these glasses. I had worse glasses. <laughs> oh, <no>. Um, <laughs> You Both in that they were they looked worse and they didn't and they I needed stronger glasses. Um, but uh, yeah, but 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 several people gave me some amazing opportunities. Um, one of them was I, I interned at a magazine called In These Times. I don't know if you know of it. Yeah, they actually just yeah. wrote a really good cover story about. Yeah, us. they're great. Yeah. Check and out the latest issue of In These Times. Yeah, please do. Kush Thompson's on the cover. Eric hey. Um but I wrote for them a piece about an affordable housing fight in the North Shore. And that was, I think, the first time I had really grappled with um, people explicitly arguing for segregation <laughs> um, and 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 using and, and, and what that was a watershed moment for me, partly because it was the first time I'd really grappled with zoning as which has become one of my really big interests. And, and when you say zoning, let's so zoning. Yeah. So this is intermediate definition. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we need like a glossary. Sound effect. <laughs> da, 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 da. Um, I'm going to add it in post. Zoning is basically all of the laws or most of the laws that deal with um, what how you're allowed to build and how you're allowed to use land in cities. So every city has a zoning code. They've existed for about a hundred years. Um, and they're everything. It's how, how big the building can be, how many homes it can have, how big the homes have to be. Um, residential versus commercial. Residential versus commercial versus industrial. Um, on and on and on and on. And it's been used since the very, very beginning to, um, you know, among other things, right? So, so I should say, you know, there, there's there's legitimate uses for zoning, right? Lots of legitimate uses for zoning. But you want to say, yeah, go ahead. We right, you want to go through, but what is it for real? You, you, <laughs> so you want to say, so you know, so a legitimate use is like you don't want to have a factory next to a home, right? So you say, don't put a factory next to a home. Cool. But the original the original justification for zoning out and out by the people who said it was to keep property values high. Right. And you can read people saying back in the twenties, back in the twenties, like I know where this is going. Nothing. There's, there's this one lawyer who's like, okay, you say you're going to keep property values high by like, you know, keeping the buildings nice, keeping the uses correct, whatever. Um, but no, no height limit or whatever, or density limit is going to keep your value, keep your property values high unless it also keeps out black people or Chinese people or whoever it is, right? Um, because in a this was true in the 1920s, that's true today, right? In a racist housing system, the presence of many kinds of non-white people reduces property values on its own. Um, but then, and then sort of in the post-war era, era um, during like the big boom in suburbanization, there was something called exclusionary zoning, which was basically... Um, where suburbs would say from the beginning, uh, you can only build single family homes here, no apartments. You can only build big single family homes. Um, and basically it was, it was a, it was a floor to the income of people who could move there. Um, and that was actually, it's sort of, it's surprising how, how much this narrative is sort of not continued to be told, but like in the fair housing fights of the 1960s, 70s, even into the 80s, exclusionary zoning was a huge part of that. Um, there were a whole series of court cases of marshes, even in Chicago, Arlington Heights, which is a Northwest suburb, probably the big Supreme Court case that really closed the door that, the you know, huge, huge blow to the fair housing, open housing movement was in Arlington Heights where, you know, it's this 99% white suburb. And uh, an affordable housing developer went up there. Really sucks for that one guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I should say it's it's yeah, it's let's think about him. Let's think about the one percent there. <laughs> right. No, the number, her. It's even worse her. than that. It, it was like I forgot <laughs> the numbers are something like it was like forty thousand people and like sixteen black people or something like that. It was like wow. crazy. Um, but anyway, so this affordable housing developer explicitly as like an integration move 
was like, we want to build affordable housing in Arlington Heights. We can only make the numbers work if we can build an apartment, right? We can't, it, it's just way too expensive to build a whole bunch of single family homes and then sell them for really cheap. And, but the zoning wouldn't let them. So they sued, got to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court was like, no, it's cool. Arlington Heights, keep doing your thing. So they did. <laughs> and everywhere else has to. Um, so this was my long digression on zoning. I could really, I could fill the entire hour on that, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Anyway, so, so long, story, so long story short, when I was going up to cover this affordable housing fight in, uh, I think it was Winnetka, um, they were using zoning to, to prevent affordable housing from being built there. And, and the, and the, and the people who it was an incredible fight by some very brave and very admirable, you know, amazing work by people who were fighting for affordable housing, people who lived in Winnetka, um, but unfortunately, at least in the the sort of phase I was covering, they lost. So, you know, we talked a little bit about how this stuff is shared and how it uh, ripples out in and connects to things happening in other parts of the country as well and how these systems work all over the place. But Chicago is in many ways, you know, epitomizes or is, an, you know, exceptional in how fucked up it is in regard to this. What What's unique about the way that housing specifically is and housing segregation is enforced here, that's both a, historically and today. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, so I, you know, my my instinct, and I don't know if it's just like homerism or what, but you know, my instinct is often when people are like, "Oh, Chicago is exceptional," to be like, "Well, let's not go too far that way, right?" Like, the U.S. is really segregated, and you can go to the least segregated U.S. city, and it's really segregated. Which, which is you what? know, uh, but generally, cities in the South and West are the least segregated, hmm. partly because. Um, partly just because they're newer. And so if like two thirds of all your housing has been built since the Fair Housing Act, it's like harder to maintain those lines of segregation. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll leave it there anyway. Um, but like, you know, go to Portland or San Francisco or LA and like ask people if they think there's a segregation problem and they'll be like, yeah. <laughs> um, right. Um, but, but so that said, Chicago really is unique and really is extreme in a lot of ways. Um, you know, one of them, which I've only sort of more recently begun to appreciate and sort of dive into, one of them is um, the way we're racially segregated, by which I mean, and I, because I've compared this to New York in a lot of ways, if you, New York statistically is actually basically neck and neck, like in terms of black, white segregation is neck and neck with Chicago. And everybody's always sort of like shocked when I say that. Um and I think one reason is that unlike Chicago, if you go to New York, um, there are way fewer all black neighborhoods, right? They'll be black mixed with Asian or black mixed with Latino or whatever. And I think that creates some kind of feeling of uh, less of isolation, right? Than and in also, Chicago. And also they're not, it's not one line. It's yes. you pass through different neighborhoods yes. to get to other black Right. The, it's, it's a little bit more it's of a the side. Of exactly. The exactly. Right. It's a little bit more of a patchwork. And we're like, we're putting all the black people in Queens. <laughs> <laughs> Queens right. is black. Right. right. Staten Island is Staten white. Staten Island that is has, white. That's, that that's basically true, right? Um, <laughs> Shout out to my black people in Staten Island. <laughs> I got um, I'm going to come out there. I'm going to come check y'all out. New York, yeah. stand up. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways, in some ways, Chicago has gotten better about that. So like in 1980, there were tons and tons of all white neighborhoods, all white neighborhoods in Chicago. And that's much harder to find now, right? There, there'll be so Asian people, there'll be Latino people, right? Um, still probably no black people, but like, it'll be a little bit more mixed like that. Um, so that's one thing. And that's something not like black people in like the American context. The city. You might get black immigrants yeah. From, yeah. from islands or from like the West coast. Yeah. Of, of, but like the like Jim Crow delineated yeah. le legacy is usually still separated. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's so yeah and so that's that's so that's changed a little bit and that and that and but that difference between chicago and like new york i think that's true generally in the midwest and the rust belt um it's not totally unique chicago i mean another thing is just like how you know chicago is maybe the only city in the country that is dealing simultaneously with large-scale gentrification that otherwise you basically only see on the coasts um, where you have a genuinely booming city center, lots of money pouring in, people pouring in, that radiating out to neighborhoods for miles to the north and northwest, especially beginning to trickle down to the west and south. Um, 
you, so you have you have both the sort of large scale gentrification and large scale neighborhoods that have just been so deeply stigmatized um, for decades that are still losing population that um, are deeply underserved by retail by all sorts of things that still have really you know unacceptably high levels of cr- violent crime. There aren't a lot of cities that are dealing with both of those things simultaneously within a few miles of each other. And that that level of extremity, you know, maybe you could say New York was 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Today, that that second half, right? You know, the South Bronx isn't what it was 20 years ago, right? You yeah, know? stand up. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um but it is, you Wait, know. I wish I could have saw how giddy he got with the Bronx. <laughs> he was very he did the he did the hand motion and everything. You haven't talked about it. This is like has nothing to do no, with, no. except for the Bronx. The get down. You watched it? I haven't watched it yet. No. Oh man, you're gonna love it. I'm excited. Dude. I've heard good things. If you've seen it and you've been in I had an abandoned lot one day where I was <laughs> where I took some rest, and it's only six episodes. So I, I got right. some catching up. Oh man, Ch- check that out. Sorry, y'all. No, so <laughs> no. But I, I think also that that tension there between divested neighborhoods, usually basically places get divested from, and then later when the investment comes, it's in the form of gentrification. To have those two things happening simultaneously right next to each other, like you're saying, seems potentially uh, like a different thing that happens in other places. And I actually, I really, I think one of the reasons why I'm really glad to have you here is because when we talk about gentrification, there's a lot of pieces that one, just personally, I don't understand. And it's something that I, you know, in the, in all the framework and all the learning and all the talking that we do, we've kind of, at least on the show, we haven't really dug in. So like, what are some of the myths of how it functions um, that you think people misunderstand? And then like, what does it actually look like in the city? Yeah, that's a really good question. I was actually just having a conversation. I got like three minutes, right? Uh, Cool. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was just talking yesterday with somebody on over Twitter about this, about like, we can't even agree. There's no consensus definition of gentrification, even among like professional urban planners, you know? Yeah, no, there, there isn't. And so we were sort of talking about like two sort of distinct ideas, um, that I think get conflated a lot and it's really helpful to sort of separate them. One of them is displacement, which is just, which, which itself sort of has two parts. One of them might be people who already live in the neighborhood who have to leave um, because, you know, they're priced out. Um, and the other part is people who would move to a place, but they can't. So they don't already live there, but they would move there and then they can't. And that could be, you know, I, and I think that part actually really doesn't get enough attention um, because that's important. It's important that people can move where they want to move, right? For job reasons, for being close to family, for being close to transportation, whatever. Um, and like, and it's sometimes th- th- those are still people who have deep roots in those neighborhoods, right? The children of people who grew up there, um, who, you know, went away to school or moved somewhere else and want to come back and now they can't. Um, or just, you know, immigrants. I mean, you know, anybody, right? Um, so displacement is one is one part. Um, and that's I mean, there's lots of lots more to say about that. The other side, though, is cultural. Right. Is the idea that like, I mean, take Humboldt Park, right? Humboldt Park is a Puerto Rican community and that means something. And. And even if nobody is displaced, even if I mean, let's say everybody, you know, no, say there's no displacement, but a bunch more people move in and the cultural feeling of the neighborhood changes. I think there's lots of people who would call that change. And the economic makeup. Well, you're saying specifically. I'm saying specifically. I mean, let's just say, yeah. I mean, let's say, you know, I mean, you sort of have to contort yourself to do this, but like, you know, let's say uh, like Logan square, Humboldt park becomes a place where people from lots of different neighborhoods from even the suburbs come on a Friday night. Right. And they're not Puerto Rican and they want, a different kind of thing, right? They're looking for and gastro so, pubs. Yeah, they're looking for gastro pubs. They're looking for like, you know, $12 cocktails and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they come in and so all of a sudden a whole bunch of businesses come up to support that. Um, you know, I think there are people who would call that gentrification um, even if nobody's just really displaced from their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that 
that side or and and you know so often those two things go together right so if people are displaced and replaced by people who have a different cultural background that's you know the culture is changing and people are being displaced but sometimes it's not that so a couple years ago i don't actually know if this ever actually went through but there was like a there was like an abandoned factory like one you know one or two story building on on i think on north avenue and they were going to turn it into like a, an art studio and like Puerto Rican, basically a Puerto Rican cultural center of, of some sort. And it, this was explicitly framed as an anti-gentrification move because it was institutionalizing some Puerto Rican culture in the neighborhood. Right. But like, think about in terms of housing prices. If I told you that like an abandoned, that I was taking an abandoned factory and turning it into an art center, and that was supposed to prevent displacement and like hold down housing prices, no, right? Like there's there is no world in which you do that and you don't get at least a little bump in housing prices in the in the surrounding area, right? So that's a case where like institutionalizing the culture, which is a you know, an a good goal and making an investment in a culture. and making an investment in, in the community um is potentially raising housing prices and potentially at the margin, you know, making it harder for somebody to live there. So, so I I I I have a like a question cuz I think I was talking to a developer, like a black developer who was like about to redo like some, pro- like basically he was like a proponent of black gentrification without uh-huh. like knowing the word. Um, and what I was struggling with, and I think what people struggle with is that, right? Like what those zoning laws we talked about, the, the idea was keeping housing prices high. In American society, we kind of view that as like a sign of good living, mm-hmm. of, of social health. Yeah. Right. So how do we explain to people how raising prices of housing, especially when we're not raising income, right, is violent. And even though the the neighborhood may look prettier, there may be better murals, there may be some better buildings or even better grocery stores that come. Right. How do we explain that that is violence that is um, like disruptive or, 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 or destabilizing? Yeah. Um, From your perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's I I mean, there's this there's there's a fundamental contradiction here, which is housing prices are taken as a sign of community health. They are taken to be one of the main ways that people build wealth in the society. Right. Huge, huge part of the racial wealth gap. I mean, the Washington Post did a series on this, and I think I'm making this number up. There's like a chance that this is totally wrong, but I think it's about, you're, you're I think the they said, guy. I know, I know, I know, I know, I'm letting you guys down. Um, <laughs> I think they said something like 80% of the racial wealth gap is about housing. Yeah, I think that's right. close to um, Certainly there's no way to close that without fixing housing prices, but what fixing housing prices means is raising housing prices in black neighborhoods. Um so this, you know, it's not just, it's not like, it's not like the idea that, that housing prices going up is, is, you know, there's as good as, as there's nothing behind it. Like for the people who own those properties, that, that that's a big deal. But at the same time, you know, when housing prices go up, yeah, the people are hurt and, and, and the composition of the, of the communities changes. I, I mean, I think, you know, part of something that I, I I've been starting to say is, you know, the only reason we have deeply affordable communities within 20 minute commute of the loop, uh, places like Garfield Park, Washington Park, you know, the only reason that there that those communities are as affordable as they are today is racism and segregation. The only reason there's no, there's no good economic reason mm-hmm. for those to be the case. The loop from is from an urban planning yeah. development point yeah. of view. It's like, that's prime property. Yeah. Exactly. I you know, thought of it like that. Like th- those are, the, yeah. th- those are, you know, the, the loop is the second biggest job cluster in the country, right? It is in. Yeah. And so, you know, for people, for people who are fighting against racism and segregation, you have to think about that, right? Because the end of racism means, and you know that's not coming like 2017 around the corner, right? But like you know, you're as, off. <laughs> you're getting, um, not too late to get into race into racism. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I like that. Good yeah, um, but you know, but 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 even just on the margins, reducing the discrimination against those communities, reducing the stigma of those communities, bringing grocery stores, lowering the crime rate, 
all of these, you know, improving the schools, all of these things are going to raise property values. They're going to raise rents. Um, and ultimately, the only way to get around that is, I mean, I would say two things. One, um, and this is going to be the more controversial one, um, when... <laughs> When, 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 when way more people want to live in a neighborhood, we need to respond by allowing more housing there. Even if it's higher income, even if it's targeted to higher income people, because when, you know, it, when, 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 when a rich white person wants to move to a neighborhood, they're going to move to that neighborhood, right? There is no policy tool that we have. Can't tell us that. No. <laughs> no, seriously, there's no policy tool that we have that can stop them from doing that. And so if they don't move into a shiny new glass apartment, they're going to move into your older apartment and they're going to pay, they're going to offer your landlord $500 a month more than you pay. And your landlord's going to be like, I'll take that one, you know? Um, and so, and there's boatloads of evidence, boatloads, boatloads, boatloads of evidence from across the political spectrum by, or by researchers from across the political spectrum that allowing more housing construction leads to lower prices and less segregation. So that's number one. But number two is, create as much housing that is not where the price is not set by the market as possible. So public housing, um, you know, privately run affordable housing, section eight, eligible section eight vouchers. So a big thing. So at my last job, one of our big things was the way we do housing assistance is really messed up. Um, so, and we compared it with like snap food, food stamps, which, you know, I mean, not a perfect program by any means, but like people eat, but people eat. Well, and the big thing with food stamps is the, you know, it's an entitlement. So like if your income qualifies you for food stamps, theoretically, at least you get food stamps, right? They give you money to eat. Um, that's not the way it works with housing. With housing, we create a certain number of vouchers. And once those are taken, good luck. Have, you know, put your, put your name on the waiting list, wait 10 years. Um and so, you know, the, the statistic is 77% of people whose income qualifies them for housing assistance don't get it at all. Um, and that's crazy. And we need to move towards a system where if you qualify for housing assistance, you get it. And so that, that's where I, I guess the question that I've been like waiting to ask for like the right minute mark where I like 40 minutes right now <laughs> is... From all that you're seeing and you have, you know, you have such a structured understanding of like human despair, really. Uh, <laughs> if yeah. that's heavy. To, to no, but that's true. Back. No, that's true. So where from your seat um, is the fight, right? Like what is the thing if like if people just knew this, if people organize and mobilize against this thing first, this would create the biggest dent. This would reduce the most harm. This would, but I mean, obviously it's not isolated. Yeah. It's interconnected, yeah. right? But what are some of the things, what are the things that like this could drastically transform the lives of masses of people if, right? And, and there's a lot of ifs in all of the sectors of society, but but, but what are some of the things you're seeing that, that should, where the fight should be, be held? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a big one is dramatically expanding off market housing and, and housing assistance. So, so, and this, and this is unfortunately, you know, so much housing work is at the local level for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, this is something that really can only be done at the state or national level and really at the national level. So I'm going to get, I'm going to get into the weeds for like a second here. So, but bear with me. I'm with you. Um, so basically if you, um, so Let's so basically, roll, roll, oh, we should have like a drop roll up <laughs> <laughs> pun. Don't look. <laughs> um, so so basically, so 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 when I said that we don't give seventy seven percent of people who qualify for housing assistance, low income housing assistance, don't get it. Probably a lot of people think, oh, we need to spend way more money on it. False. We actually spend tons and tons of money on housing assistance. The vast majority of it goes to middle class and rich people. Uh, there is specifically something called the mortgage interest tax deduction, which says basically if you own a home, you get to write off um, the interest you pay on your mortgage. Obviously, the bigger the house you have, the more expensive the house you have, the more uh, interest you have. And also, because for tax reasons, the more income you have, the more your tax rate, the more you get, the more you save. So basically, long story short, 
This is our sexiest episode. This is the sexiest episode. <laughs> no, but this stuff is this is like so this is like seriously. I can't wait for your freestyle. Man. You know, we you know we you know we end every episode before we stop. After this, we need the ball. Mortgage interest tax deduction rap. Yeah. Um no, but but so so at one point I calculated we could give a housing voucher to every single household that qualifies for it just by cutting the assistance we give to households making the housing assistance we give to households making over a hundred thousand dollars a year, right? We're talking like tens of billions of dollars that we are giving to people who do not need a cent to afford housing. Um, and there's, there, you know, it's not like nobody in Congress knows this. Uh, Keith Ellison, who's a representative from from around the Twin Cities, has a bill to reform the mortgage tax de- interest tax deduction. Um, that hasn't gone anywhere because, you know, because hey, because that's why because fuck them, basically. Yeah. Um, but it, so, yeah, if I could have like one campaign, like sweep the nation, it would be let's stop giving housing assistance to rich people and give it to people who actually need it to afford basic, decent housing. Mm-hmm. That would be like my number one, um, you know, locally, locally. <laughs> I would love to see, you know, I would love to see more organizing around CHA. I would love to, the Chicago Housing Authority. I would love, which and I should stop there. There is amazing organizing happening around the CHA, the Keep the Promise Ordinance, um, the Chicago Housing Initiative, stuff around Lathrop, the redevelopment of Lathrop right now is really big. Um, I would love to see that catch on even more um, because the CHA, locally, the CHA is really the organization that's going to have the power to create non-market housing, affordable housing that isn't subject to the fluctuations of the market um, at scale. And I think that they could, you know, I, I think there's a lot of room for for interesting things to be done there. You know, I, I also think having a state law that, so states like um, Oregon, Massachusetts, there are states that have laws that limit the ways that local governments can use zoning to exclude people and to Mm. foster segregation. So Oregon has a law basically that says that, Hey, you have to, you have to say, you have to keep a certain amount of land in your community for, uh, for apartments, for, for not just single family homes. Right. And that's going to increase the supply of housing. It's going to increase the supply of relatively lower income housing. Um, that's a good thing. Massachusetts has a law that says there's actually a state board where if you're trying to build, say those, that, that developer in Arlington Heights, who's trying to build affordable housing, um, and, and Arlington Heights is saying, no, that's not part of the zoning. That developer, if they were in Massachusetts could go to a state board and say, um, Hey, they're stopping me from building affordable housing. And if Arlington Heights doesn't have enough affordable housing already, that state, yeah, that state board can say, can overrule the local governments. Fuck your zones. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for making this more interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so I think, so I think having a, and Illinois has a state affordable housing law. It has zero teeth. Um, it, it just, it's, it's, it's close to meaningless. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, pressure the CHA, create a real affordable housing law statewide and nationally take away rich people's housing handouts and give them to lower income people that's my platform that's a good plan i think, I think that makes sense um so i'm gonna I'm call my people thank you <laughs> so this kind of understanding right wait how, no, i don't have a phone i'm not gonna call anybody <laughs> you're gonna have to borrow my phone to yeah borrow me. daniel's phone yeah. i don't I got, know if i have all your people's numbers uh, saved hey my people <laughs> listen to this my people <laughs> if you get all your people to listen to the podcast that would also right. be great too um but kind of this like this structural understanding of the city which like is this coupling of uh, of what you study, what you read, what you spend your day doing, and then what it means to be here. Like, it's, why is it so rare? Basically, like, why, basically, why isn't everyone an urban planner? <laughs> Which is a yeah. silly question, but I don't understand. It's so, if it's you're, so cur- central if you're curious about why, where you live is the way you live. Like, why isn't that something that we place? And, and for you, like, yeah, does it, fulfill when when you go like i want to understand the way this is uh i want to understand why this is the way it is do the tools that you learn for that in school give you what you need to understand it um 
I'll take the first part of that question first. So why why isn't I I don't know. I don't know. Um it's just it's like crazy. It's crazy to me how much of what shapes our daily life is completely uh, is completely invisible to almost everybody. I mean the idea that I mean just to take something like really simple um you know why why does a building look the way it does, right? Zoning if it's been built since like 1930, the answer is zoning. Uh, why, why is it this high? Why does it have parking or not have parking? Um, why is it as dense as it is? The answer is zoning, period. Uh, I mean, not period, right? Also, like who wants to live there and all that comma. stuff. But like, but comma, first. ellipsis, <laughs> ellipsis, semicolon. Um, Punctuation game crazy. But like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, all of this stuff is like deeply, and this is why, I mean, it's funny because like, I think on the, you know, on the left, it's all, you know, uh, I, I'll put myself there. Uh, <laughs> uh, Don't worry. All the listeners put you there. Already. Yeah. On the, you know, on the left, there's this, there's this sense that like, um, as soon as the, the, like, that the problem the is give to the poor. Yeah. 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 yeah right. I, I probably outed myself. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, on the left, I think there's this sort of intuitive sense that like most of the time the issue is not enough regulation, right? Most of the time the issue that the, the powers that we're afraid of or that we think are being abused are the powers of free market agents doing what they want. And obviously in many, 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 many cases that's true. And it's also true in many ways in housing. But I think that leads some people sometimes to underplay the extent to which housing is deeply, deeply regulated and regulated specifically for increasing property values, right? In ways that are, or, or fostering segregation. Um, and so that's interesting. Like that's not something that, like that's a bigger social claim that like, I think is really yeah. important that like regulation can be a tool of like conservative. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, 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 and housing regulation overwhelmingly is. And so I, I think I, I think people aren't looking for it in that way. I mean, so I, I so often hear people who who are you know really smart, doing really good work, talk about like you know our our unregulated free market, unbridled housing system, and I'm like, mm, no, you know, like the price is not regulated. That's right, the price is not regulated, but like everything else is, mm. and in almost every case, it's designed to keep prices high and um yeah and and to maintain and as both as a as a way to do that and then also just like as a symptom of the way our world works to also maintain segregation in that as well yeah um another book for i'm going to give two reading list plugs one is there's a book called uh um some of my best friends are black which is about uh the ways that segregation works like historically and then putting it contemporary, basically like even in the neighborhoods where they fought redlining and, you know, maintained and created somewhat uh, integrated households, folks still don't like get together and play Scrabble there. <laughs> so it's like, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it works as a, as a tool for maintaining those things. Um, but it, it, it's also a symptom of those things. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then the other thing is there's an HBO show called show me a hero. It's a six part mini series oh, yeah. about Yonkers. Yes. BX all day. Um, <laughs> the Tibbetsburg Diner, which is where I would go after baseball games, is featured in that show. It's very exciting. But it's it's all about this, and it's about this fight, and it's about like how the regulation is a tool, uh, and just how mad people get about it. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. crazy. <laughs> get people get oh my so, god, so fucking people mad. lose their fucking minds. <laughs> yeah. People lose their fucking minds. Do you think that's part of why like it's hard for these kinds of like to understand the ways that regulation the way housing impacts everything part of why it's hard to bring that into the conversation is because it's so deeply personal people are like this is my house this is my it's block like, this is where yeah. I live. it's religion and politics it's like an, one of those things that like people will kill you over you know <laughs> yeah or, or no absolutely house, you know? i mean people people are very you know completely understandably people are very protective of what they feel like is their home and their space and their neighborhood um, and we also cut you off a little bit. You were ex- no, 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 no. Expl- the, we were also explaining the like how invisible the work you do is, and why, and why that. So I just want to put that back in your brain too as you're going on. No, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> we got a lot of irons in the fire. We got a lot of irons in the fire. Yeah, it's just um, you know, and I think I think sometimes people who who are studying this and who are doing this are. 
you can very, very easily get to a place where you're just like, fuck the neighborhood, fuck your house. Right. We're going to do like, people should be able to do what they want. And we're just going to like sweep all of this way. And I think it's, you know, I, I, I am sometimes in that uh, space mentally, but I think it's really important to remember that like, you know, people are protective of their homes for a reason. And, 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 you know, not just because that's a, a reasonable thing to do, but also politically, right. The only way to overcome this is to organize and to convince people that, um, convince people that, you know, different regulations, one that don't promote segregation in the same way are not threatening to them. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, you're not going to do that by starting the conversation saying, fuck you in your neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. So to that question of like, what, what does it mean for a planner to get, you know, when it gets that big and people are actually reshaping, you know, like when they bulldozed Jewtown and created UIC. Yeah. Like that's millions of hundreds of thousands of homes and lives. Yeah. Uh, I think that the ability or the willingness to do that, like inherently comes from this position of privilege, right? Of like, oh, we're just not going to see the humans there. Yeah. We're going to see the the statistics. We're going to see the... Um, we're we're gonna see the causes and the effects and the numbers and all those yeah. things. Uh, how do we make? And I'm asking all the I'm putting this all on you to do this. But Thanks. how do you make urban planners see humanity more? How do you connect urban planners That's to this huge. community that we're talking? No about? racism, yes. 2017. How we get hashtag? There? Yeah, uh, I think a hashtag is a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's that's huge, and and I mean I think. You know, I, I mentioned earlier. You know, having 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 faith that what I'm doing is addressing the problem is is a constant struggle, and and this is one of the reasons. You know, I mean, you 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 read the history. The people who who cleared Jewtown for UIC or who cleared Northern Bronzeville for Lake Meadows. You know, many of them were out out there for profit. Many of them were you know various shades of racist, whatever. A lot of them were really well-intentioned liberals, like really well-intentioned liberals who really thought that what they were doing was improving the lives of poor people. And, um, you know, or or look at, I mean, more more recently, the plan for transformation, Hope 6, which is basically the, the federal program, really big in Chicago, tear down old public housing high-rises and replace them with low-rise, you know, whatever. The people who thought that, Many, many, many of the people who who advocated that program really thought they were doing the right thing. And I mean, you know, people are still arguing that today. I think from today's perspective, certainly in Chicago, it's hard to, you know, given just the, the level of displacement and the number of people who have not been able to return anywhere close to their homes for at this point, 20 years, you know, that's rough. But 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 so the point is, you know, yeah, it's hard to know. It's hard to, I think both of those things are examples of people not being connected to the humans in the way that they needed to be. Um, and, you know, for me, it's sort of, you know, I have sort of formulated a rule for myself, which is no matter what else, if the plan involves forcing lots of people out of their homes, it's bad. Like, and I, that sounds stupidly obvious, but like it hasn't been obvious to generations of planners, even even the generation of planners that came after the like massive catastrophe of urban renewal in the mid-century, even those planners who knew that that was a massive catastrophe, they still did the same thing, right? And so it's so easy. I mean, especially as a planner, you're looking at it from 30,000 feet. You're like trying to sort of, you know, you're like, well, what if we just like wiped it all clean, start fresh, <laughs> you know, we know how to do things now. So let's just like, let's just do that. And um, that's a really, it's so tempting. It's so tempting. And it, uh, you know, as far as I can tell, has basically always been a disaster. Yeah, every every problem was a solution to another problem. Yeah. And we just keep making them work. So I also know, you know, among the bajillion things you do, you also do what we're doing right now. You do <laughs> interviews. Yeah. And that's like on the all the way on the other end of that spectrum of the the personal to the structural. Mm -hmm. Um why do that? And you want to talk a little bit about what Chicago dispatches and get get the plug in there? Sure. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, almost uh yeah. So basically, um 
you know, when I moved back to Chicago, I started, I started a blog. Originally it wasn't meant even for public consumption, but eventually it sort of became public and became a, a way that I sort of worked through issues, you know, made some maps, talked to people. It was great. We didn't even talk about your maps. Yeah. 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 Oh, uh, like you can put that, that, you was... can put that on the, I don't know. Anyway, but the point is, so, you know, so I did that for a, a couple of years and, um, you know, at a certain point I, I was sort of like, well, there's all these other things I want to talk about and want to think about that I can't really address by like downloading some census data sets and like making a map of it. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so the Chicago dispatch really came out of that. And the idea was, um, to, to do sort of long form interviews, written, uh, long form interviews, photography, um, you know, if I could convince people to write for me too, uh, I, I am paying, but it's only, you know, it is pennies compared to what it should be. Cause I'm, it's not a lot of pocket at this point. Um, so it's mostly interviews. Um, yeah, it's basically another, it's an, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's an extension of the blog. It's, it's like questions I have, things I want to figure out. Um, and, but, you know, instead of making a map out of it, it's like, I call up Lee Bay and I'm like, Hey, will you talk to me for an hour? And he says, yes, yeah, cause he's a nice guy. So to the point of those maps though, I, I mean, it's why it was my entry point into knowing your work is that like all of the most clear, all the things that I understood all the times that there was data that I understood what it was, what it was actually saying. I kept being like, Oh, at the bottom, there's Daniel Cabrera's <laughs> name. Like that's awesome. Thank that's, you. I mean, and that to me seems like part of the goal and it, it worked. Um, and I keep like citing your numbers and your stats because I actually understood them. Have you had a fan before? Like, like <laughs> this, is, <laughs> no, this we, is great. We are still expecting the freestyle, but like you, know, <laughs> you, you, you have a following. Is yeah, what's yeah. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Is that kind of accessibility like that seems like that's part of the goal, too? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a bit, I think like the, the sort of another way of talking about the sort of niche I think I've carved for myself and what I'm interested in is taking these like complicated invisible whatever issues and trying to talk about them in a way that's accessible to people who are interested but don't have you know can't like sit through a 40 page pdf from some academic researcher at stanford you know and yeah and 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 i kind of stumbled into the map making but it turns out to be one of the most powerful tools especially when you're talking about issues of segregation and that sort of stuff obviously um you know what would take you 15 minutes or a thousand words to explain suddenly you have a map and they're like, Oh, Oh, I get it. Um, and, and you don't need that shared academic vocabulary for it. Either. Right, right, right. Which is really, which is really powerful. So that's how we make everyone an urban planner to answer. That's how we make. Yeah. Is you, you give them the information in a way they can, they don't need a degree to go with. Anyway, we're running out of time. Any I, last I, pieces? Yeah. I would, cause this shit was heavy, right? Like, <laughs> like personally, like I really enjoyed it. I would like to like, where is there some hope? <laughs> like, like, you know, we're talking about like a century of like really terrible things and yep. really heavy things and things that, the thing about like, even the work I do, right, is that the, these problems are so big, they're national, they're global, right? So like, it can, it can just get to the point of like, well, you know, the Illuminati's running it, you know, they, there's nothing yeah. to do. I might as well just, you know, go watch Netflix, you know? So, so where is there hope? You know, I would like to end with like what you're seeing of like, you know, over this arc, you know, things are bad, things are good, but, but, but where is there up, up trends and where can sure. you find some, some hope? Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, that's, that's a really, really important thing. Cause this is housing can be an incredibly depressing field. Um, you know, I think there's hope in, yeah, I mean, baseline, Racial segregation in, in the U.S. has been declining very slowly for about 40 years. Very, very, very slowly from crazy high levels. We're moving very slowly in the right direction, at least on that. It's getting worse economically, but, um, you know, very slowly we're improving. Yeah. Um, for those of you at home, Damon and I are doing a handshake right now. It's like a close up of the two we, of our we hands. Represent. <laughs> yeah. We represent the new world here. You are, the, we don't you are progress. You slowly are creating <laughs> our new world. Yeah. I mean, so that's, you know, so that's one thing. Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, I guess shit on us. Yeah. Rap game, Paul McCartney, get out. Um, so that's one thing. I mean, you know, people are continuing to organize and do amazing work. That's constantly, you know, inspiring to me. Um, I, you know, I think, I, I think the current round of sort of both economic crisis and like housing crisis in particular has led to like a spate of new organizing on a number of different fronts that I find really encouraging the stuff that's happening out in, um, 
you know, in, in the Bay Area, which is sort of on the leading edge of yeah. the most terrible housing market in the country. Um, there's some good stuff happening there. Um, also some bad stuff. But, uh, you know, and the, but then I, you know, I also just think, you know, and I think that's when I read people, you know, I was talking about this guy in the, literally the 1920s, a hundred years ago saying, Hey, uh, zoning is going to be racist guys. Um, <laughs> and like, yeah, it's basically, yeah, he's, he's right. And like, he predicted the next hundred years of housing policy in the United States. Um, and, and so it's Shouts really, to him. yeah, yeah. So, mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, not even only him, really, like a federal judge actually struck down zoning before it got to the Supreme, to the Supreme court and the Supreme court was like, cool. A federal judge was like, no, this is segregation. Segregation is, is like, you can't legally do housing segregation. No. Um, and then the Supreme court was like, no, yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's, it's fine. That's fine. The, 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 literally the Supreme court ruling that is still the, the, the ruling that says that the zoning is constitutional calls people who live in apartments parasites that is the word it uses um anyway so, so yeah hope so hope so hope <laughs> anyway so so what i was saying, <laughs> i'm sorry i'm sorry you parasites so hope out um, but so so what i was so so you know it's really easy to read that stuff and be like holy shit people have been banging their heads against this particular wall for a hundred years but and i know like you know white lefty citing Tanasi Coates is like, so 2015, but, um, but no, but, but, you know, he, he wrote a couple of things that I actually took a lot from, which is basically like, it's okay if what you do doesn't immediately lead to change. There need to be people who are speaking the truth regardless, if only because that's their personal imperative or to sort of keep that flame alive or whatever and so you know when it gets down to sort of the bottom 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 that keeps me going it's like it is important to point these things out and to say these things whether or not they change and i think that that is not hopeful from one point of view but from another from a sort of human you know i'm not really a spiritual person but almost from a spiritual level that is something that keeps me going thank you so much for being here this is beautiful um and uh for those of y'all who now want to be urban planners, uh, they do offer degrees in it. You could also just peep some maps. It's pretty yeah. cool. Um, yeah. Thank you. Shoot for me being. an email if anybody wants to like start that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm at... Uh, it's time for the plugs. Cool. So I'm at uh, Daniel K-A-Y Hertz, H-E-R-T-Z at gmail.com. If you have any questions, if you want to go to urban planning school, whatever, shoot me an email. Yeah, I know. I love talking to people about this stuff. From now on, we only interview people named Daniel. <laughs> for the record, okay. What can we at least expect to D's? Like, can I be a part of the solidarity of this? D-A. Of this All right. D-A. All right. I, I like yeah, that. I like yeah. that. Thanks again. Thank uh, you so much for having me. I really appreciate this it. Is, this was dope, man. Uh, and much love to the people. Yeah, we'll be back uh, next week. Hopefully, if I find housing, we might be in the same apartment or Ergo Studio C might be created. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we'll talk to you next week. Peace.